text for this morning's sermon is Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. You may want to put a bookmark in Jeremiah chapter 2 as well. But we're primarily looking at uh, the Lord's Prayer here again for a final Sunday uh, in Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to your word now to learn about you, to learn from you. God, I pray that you would be gracious to us. You tell us that When we seek with all of our heart, we will find you. Lord, I pray that you would give us an eagerness to seek you this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, I preached... uh, at uh, Grace Bible Church in Watertown, and I preached the uh, Lord's Prayer in one message, what took six messages here, or five messages here. Today's going to be the sixth. I summarized everything we'd been through, and for me, it was so good for me to go back through and remember it. And So part of today's message is going to be remembering what we've learned as we looked at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, But really with this drive to get us to ask the question, are we treasuring communion with Christ? And I want you to look at your notes for a minute. Uh, Laura pointed out this to me. She's like, this is an interesting charge you have, forgetting God in prayer uh, in bold. That is not a command to forget God in prayer. If you could put, are you forgetting God in prayer? You get the idea. I want us to consider the question. Doesn't it seem ridiculous that we could forget God in our prayers, or we could forget God and therefore forget our prayers. J.C. Ryle says, or or asks this uh, question, what is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? What's the reason that some believers are so much brighter and so much holier than others? He continues, I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 
arises from different habits about private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and that those who are eminently holy pray much. J.C. Ryle says, you show me the private prayer, and I'll show you a bright, shining, holy Christian if their prayer life is vibrant. We had talked about how, at least for me, prayer is like this thermometer of my soul. When, I, when I'm asked to pray and I'm not close to God, I learn that I'm not close to God as I begin to pray. It begins to feel phony. I realize I'm not close to God many times when I pray. Lack of prayer reveals two things. A low view of God and a high view of self. We cease to pray when we forget God. Not only when we forget God, but the reason why we forget God is because we don't have need for Him because our view of self gets raised so high. Martin Luther says, as it is the business of a tailor to make clothes and the cobbler to mend shoes, so it is the job of the Christian to pray. And then he says, not as a divine summons, like, here's your job, Christian, pray, but as a royal invitation. The king of the universe invites us to commune with him in prayer. He hears us, and we can have a relationship with him. We lack prayer when we begin to forget who God is. William Bates says this, What is the reason that our desires like an arrow shot from a weak bow, uh, do not reach the mark, but only this, that we do not meditate before prayer. The great reason our prayers are ineffectual is because we do not meditate before we pray. He's saying, your prayers will be weak where there's a lack of meditation on who God is. If you don't see clearly and think carefully about the God with whom you're praying to, your prayers will be rote. They will just be going through the motions. They'll be weak. And your desires in your prayers will feel insecure and unpassionate. In Psalm 9, Verse 9 and 10, David says this, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. And those who know your name 
put their trust in you. Who trusts God? The one who knows his name. What does it mean to know his name? It means to know everything about the one who has that name. To know the name of God is to know God. And David says, the ones who trust you are the ones who remember what you're like and know who you are. The one who remembers God can say things like this, Psalm 27.3. Though an army encamp encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The one who remembers God can pray that and be totally honest. Or Psalm 3 verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, this is a prayer, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Why won't David be afraid if thousands of people are around him ready to kill him? Because he remembers that God hears him. He remembers who God is and that he hears him in prayer. Are you forgetting God? Is that the reason for your lack of prayer? Or in prayer, are you forgetting God? Are you merely going through the motions, praying like the Gentiles prayed, thinking they'll be heard for their many words? Or are you praying like the Jews were praying, that they'd be seen by others so that you would look spiritual in front of other people? Are you seeing God? This is the great privilege we have as Christians And I'd like you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 5. In the way, one of the ways we succeed in prayer is we meditate on God. We don't forget. We remember. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet to the people of Israel and the Syrians and the Babylonians have conquered God's people at this time. And Jeremiah had one of the most depressing ministries. He called Israel to repent. We only know of two converts that he had through all of his life of ministry, calling them to repent and return to the Lord and yet he was faithful with his ministry. Here's what Jeremiah says to the people of Israel. And let Jeremiah say this to us. Let the Lord speak to us. What wrong, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness And became worthless. What a question. 
What wrong did your fathers find in me? This is God speaking. That they went after worthlessness. And as you go after worthlessness, you become worthless. Because you become like the very thing you worship. What wrong did I have that they would do such a thing? Verse 6. They did not say, where is the Lord? Or who brought us up from the land of Egypt? Who led us in the wilderness and in the deserts and pits? In a land of drought and deep dark darkness. In a land that none passes through where no man dwells. Who led us through that? They won't say that. They won't remember that God led them through. Verse 7, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. God actually brought them there that they could enjoy the fruit of the land. But when you came in, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. The prophets went to Baal, an idol, and sought him. God is saying, so what flaw did you find in me that you would go do this? Why did you not say who led us through the wilderness? Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or to Kedar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? <laughs> Is there any other place on the earth, he says, where the people have changed its gods? The answer is no. But what has Israel done? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Is this not the most appalling thing that could take place on the earth? That the people that know the one true God forsake him for lesser gods. Be appalled, O heavens. Why? For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves cistern, or cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They had the fountain of living water. They have access to him. And rather, they went and made their own cisterns that can hold no water. 
What keeps us from going to the fountain of living water? What keeps us from drinking and trusting and hoping and communing with him? What's your well that can hold no water that you create? I think the majority of the time, it is your plans. It is your wisdom. It is, you know, they hewned out for themselves. They connived for themselves. They forgot how weak they were. That they would have died in the wilderness. That they never would have even been able to leave Egypt if it wasn't for God. They forgot how weak they were and how Great God has provided for them. And yet, it's so easy for us to forget, to quit meditating on who God is and put our hope in that which does not profit. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Your view of God will control everything you do. If you have a low view of God, you won't pray much. You won't trust Him much. You won't worship much. Your view of God, whatever it is, a good question is, is my view of God the God of the Bible? Because we don't get to make up what God is like or a God who is attainable for our minds. We go to the Bible and see who our God is. And Tozer says the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders, interfering with God's work in us. It's hard for the human heart to stop trusting in ourselves and go to God and to trust God. So much so that Paul tells the Colossian church who, those who've just been saved in Christ, and Garrett preached on this about a month ago, but this is a group of people, a church that's trusted Christ, but now is chasing after all sorts of other things like visions from angels or uh, wisdom from the world. And Paul is trying to help them see who God is and come to their senses. And here's what he says, Colossians 2.2. He prays that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. <laughs> Lord, help them. Help them know how Christ fulfills all things, how if they're loved by Christ, they're full. And then he says this, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's praying, let them know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. 
Now listen, if you believe that, you will pray. If all wisdom and knowledge is bound up in Christ, in God, you will seek God for wisdom. You will submit to God's word when God's word goes contrary to what you want to do. You will say, who's wiser, Christ or me? And you'll submit to him. When we, when we believe this, and then a few verses later in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then here's his argument. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Here's Paul's argument. Remember, Jesus is dwelling bodily. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. He's fully God. Just remember, church, Jesus is God. All right? And then he says this shocking statement, and you have been filled in him. He's fully God, and you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You see his argument? Why are you listening to the traditions of man and the wisdom of man and the pragmatic ideas of man when he's fully God and you've been filled in him? How much fuller can you get than filled? You can't get any fuller. And yet... We're just like the Colossian people, are we not? Forgetting who God is, trusting in our own strength. Forgetting that when we pray, he's a personal God who loves us. Now, here's another thing A.W. Tozer writes that just is amazing. And if an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children... Now just think, an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that, he, that each may have a part, but he, but he, each one, gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. Sometimes we can think of God as God's busy. And so he's getting millions of prayers every day. And so God gives a part of himself to this person, to this person, to this person, to this person. But Tozer's saying, no, an infinite, an infinite God can give all of himself to you personally as though there were no others. Yes, there's others. But you're not bending the ear of a busy God that doesn't care about you, that doesn't love you, that doesn't want to commune with you and I. And yet that privilege so often, because we forget God and we become proud, we give away. It's kind of like we go to Baal or we go to our own idols to find hope in them. 
In Hebrews 4.15, I think Scott's going to preach this uh, next week. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows us. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, if you remember what Jesus is like, then you'll draw confidently, you'll come to him and find help in time of need. If you remember God's merciful, you'll come to him for mercy. Prayer is one of the most neglected gifts that God has given us. Throughout the whole Bible, we're told things like this. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That isn't a command that's like a burden. That's like have a relationship with God, with Christ who's fully God, all the time. You don't ever have to leave him. He's never going to leave you. What a privilege we have. Sometimes we read these as like burdens. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, the reason why Jesus died for you is so that you can have a relationship with God. That's God's will for you, that you're communing with him. So as we come to the Lord's Prayer, one last time to think through the contents of it, we need to remember God. We need to meditate on who he is. This is why careful study of your Bible matters. You have to read your Bible slowly and read the Psalms slowly and consider what's our God like? What does it mean that he doesn't give his glory to any other? What does it mean that he spoke the world into creation? We have to... Our doctrine of God informs everything in our lives. So, we need to learn how to pray, though. We need to learn how to pray. And so Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Remember, this prayer is a prayer only for Christians. This is a prayer given to the disciples this is not a prayer to get saved. This is a prayer given to the disciples. Luke 11.1. 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Jesus isn't giving them a prayer. He's teaching them how to pray. He's 
giving them the contents of our prayers, yes. Telling us what types of things to pray about. But even more than that, he's giving us the heart attitude we ought to have as we approach God in prayer. Both things. Uh, the reason why the disciples asked him, teaches how to pray, is because they've never seen anyone pray like this. Never seen anything like it. The Gentiles, if you remember, they heap up a bunch of words. Jesus said they, they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't pray like them. The Jews, they pray so that people will see them. Don't pray like them either. Pray like this, he says, and he gives the Lord's Prayer which is a reminder that praying in and of itself is not what pleases God. We're asked to pray rightly. That doesn't mean that we know the exact words that we're supposed to say we memorize. No, it comes out of an authentic heart, but it's out of a heart that approaches God for who God is. James 4 James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We can pray self in a self-centered way. The focus is on us. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Yes, it tells us to pray about everything, but in accordance with God's glory and his will. Everything in our life is to be that way. John MacArthur writes, the fundamental error in all wrong thinking about prayer is that it's primarily for people to get what they want. In reality, it's the unfathomable privilege of communing with the sovereign God of the universe. Prayer is God-centered. Donald Whitney, one of our professors at Southern, who wrote a book on the personal spiritual disciplines, says this about prayer. The Bible says that we must pray for the glory of God in his will, in faith, in the name of Jesus, with persistence. You hear any selfishness in there? Pray for the glory of God in his will, in faith, in the name of Jesus, with persistence. That's what the Bible teaches us about prayer. We're to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who, the reason why we say in Jesus' name is because the reason we can approach God is because Christ has died in our place and united us with him. So we pray to the Father in Christ's name in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to pray rightly and we're to be taught how to pray and then he says this donald whitney a child of god gradually learns to pray like this in the same way a child growing learns to talk you learn how to pray in the same way a child learns how to talk you read god's word you learn about god you listen to sermons about god and then you pray the way Christ taught us to pray, and you'll get better at it as you pray. You'll get better at communing with God, at approaching Him humbly. We 
fail to pray rightly when we approach him in pride and have low views of him. So how did Jesus tell us to pray? Quick review. When you pray could be interpreted whenever you pray. So he's not teaching pray this prayer once. The disciples never repeat the Lord's Prayer, surprisingly. This is a lesson on how to pray. Not that it's wrong for us to repeat it, but it's just when we repeat it, we remember that he's teaching us how to pray. When, when you pray or whenever you pray, say, Father, shocking, right? No one had ever personally approached God as Father in the Old Testament. And every time Jesus prays, except two times in the New Testament, he begins his prayer saying, Father. This would have been really offensive to the Jews in Jesus' day. How dare you personally call God Father? That's what it would have been like. And yet Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Do you see the privilege? The idea is, is just as God is my father, God is your father. And when you pray, you approach him as father. And what does the connotation of father have? Both intimacy and reverence. We're to revere our fathers. We're to have, in a sense, a healthy fear of our fathers, knowing that our father loves us intimately and then he says hallowed be your name we're supposed to say your name be glorified your name be set apart may your name be special when you pray now they have all sorts of circumstances that they could pray about. But Jesus says, when you pray with all your varying circumstances and feelings, say, may you be glorified. Whatever you're praying about, the heart of your prayer is that you be glorified. If you've just been diagnosed with cancer and you're praying to God, about that circumstance, the prayer might be like this. Father, I remember who you are. You're sovereign over every circumstances, the good ones and the bad ones. You tell me to rejoice in all my circumstances and never cease to pray. Father, God of the circumstance of my cancer, may you be glorified in this circumstance in my life as I ask you for healing, if that be your will. If it's not your will that I be healed and you get more glory through my life, your will be done. Is that not what Jesus prayed? Right before he went to the cross, Father, take this cup from me. What's in the cup is the wrath of God. If it is possible, take this cup from me. It is not possible. They cannot be saved any other way. So Jesus says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But 
not my will be done. You see, he's the model prayer. And he tells them to pray, hallowed be your name. That's different than saying, how dare you, God? How dare you do this to me? Have you lost control? You better fix this. You better change this. You better heal this. That's arrogance. That's pride. He says, when you pray, say, hallowed be your name. And then your kingdom come. Your will be done, Matthew says, right? In Matthew's more fuller version of the Lord's Prayer. That your reign happen right now, here. We talked about the kingdom of God is the reign of God. The, we can think of the kingdom of God universally. He reigns over the whole world. Many verses talk about that. But then there's the redemptive reign of God. The redemptive kingdom of God that happens inside the hearts of people. So that when we pray, your kingdom come, we pray this for missionaries. There's tribes, whole tribes that are not worshiping you. Father, your kingdom come. Let your reign be over those people. May their hearts submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. May people get saved. Every time a person gets saved, the kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom of God is happening as a proud rebel becomes submissive to the Lord Christ and says, I want to follow you with my life. When we pray your kingdom come, what we're saying for those of us who are already trusting Christ, we're praying that we would be sanctified, that we would submit more and more to Jesus Christ as King in our lives. And ultimately, when you pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, we're praying for the return of Christ. Because on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That'll be the most right day ever on the face of this earth. There will be those who bow because they love him and worship him. And there will be those who will be forced to bow because the judge has showed up. And he's going to call to account their life. The Bible says all of us are rebels. All of us are in rebellion to him and his reign and his kingdom. And so God sent Christ to bear your sin on the cross, to pay the price that you owed to swallow up the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perfect relationship with the, from the Son and the Father. In that moment, Jesus was receiving the wrath of God so that you can have a relationship with him if you'll trust him by faith. Every time that happens, our prayers of your kingdom come is being answered.
we talked about how our prayers ought to be like zoom up, zoom out, and zoom forward. When we pray, we get a Godward perspective. Remember who he is. We zoom out of our circumstance that's really small. As we zoom out of that circumstance, we see two things. We see the cross 2,000 years ago when God proved his love for all of us. Not that he needed to, but how could he show his love any more than sending his son to die for you? God doesn't seem good inside this little circumstance. You zoom out and you see Christ and you remember God loves me. And then as you zoom out, you see the second coming of Christ when every tear will be wiped away, when there will be no more suffering, when you'll enter the kingdom of God in the presence of God in perfect relationship with him for all eternity, where God will lavish upon us the riches of his glorious grace for all eternity over and over and over and over and over again so that after 10 million millennials will say, stop showering riches of your grace upon us and it'll still come. And so when we zoom out, we begin to pray thinking clearly, he died for me. Here's what's coming. He told me it's going to be hard in the meantime and that I need to trust him. And then we zoom forward as we strive. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. Your will be done. Bring it about, Lord. We're forward looking. Our home isn't here. Our home, our city that we're going to live in has foundations. Every other city of this earth, the foundations will crumble and they'll be gone. Every nation will fall but there will be a city that will last forever. It's the city of God, and Christ is the light of that city, and he is the king. We look forward. That's what orients us in this life. And then we depend on him for our physical needs and our spiritual needs. Give us this day our daily bread. God has every one of your days written in a book before there was ever one of them. He's sovereign, and he will provide for you everything you need to fulfill what God has called you to do for every one of your days. And he's even provided for you, if you're a believer, the faith to die well, to die trusting him, to die clinging to him. Christians will not be cursing God even in the most terrible types of death because our hope was never set down here but our hope is set on Christ he will provide all your needs remember Matthew 6 25 look at how he takes care of the birds look at how he clothes the flowers aren't you of more value than they Jesus says are you not of more value than they and then he says your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Now let, let, let's be comforted. You don't know all your needs. God knows all your needs. All of them. Be comforted that he's the one that provides. 
And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done, and all these things will be added to you. He provides your daily bread. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You don't want me. Are you kidding me, Peter? You don't want me to worry anymore? Yeah, don't worry anymore. Cast them all on Christ. Why? How can you say that? Because he cares for you. That's the reason he. And then he says, forgive us our sins. We're to go to him for spiritual things as well. Remember, we talked about justifying forgiveness. The moment you believe your sins are wiped away. Perfect righteousness is put into your account. Not guilty before the throne of heaven. That's not the type of forgiveness he's talking about here. Even though all that's true. He's writing this to believers. And what he's saying is every time you pray, confess your sins to him, ask for forgiveness for your sins because sin separates you from God relationally. When you have unconfessed sin and you're not re remembering you're a sinner in need of Christ's grace, your relationship with God will be cold. We're always in need of forgiveness. And by the way, every relationship that you have with each other is in need of forgiveness. You know how I know that? It's because you're all sinners. And the only way you can ever have a good relationship is if you're able to show the type of forgiveness to each other that he showed to you, even though you can never quite show it like that because he was perfect and forgave us. We're sinners sinning against sinners and God asked sinners to forgive each other. See, there's a little difference there. But that same love that Christ had is poured into our hearts and we need forgiveness. And finally, lead us not into temptation. Remember this? Situational awareness. Where are we? We're between the cross and the second coming of Christ. We're in wartime. There's still sin in our hearts and in our flesh. That, that's an enemy. This world system is Satan's system right now. He's the prince of the power of the air. So the world system is against your soul. And the devil and his demons are seeking to devour us. And so when you pray, don't trust in your own strength, but ask God for spiritual strength so that you won't walk right into temptation and fall. The Lord taught us how to pray. My charge to you this morning is Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. George Mueller, who was a 
man who trusted God in prayer as a man who is worthy to look at and see how he clung to Christ. Here's what he says about prayer. The great fault of the children of God is this. They do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they have it. Oh, how good and kind and gracious and condescending is the one with whom we have to do. He has given me, unworthy as I am, immeasurably above all I asked or thought. And so if you have a zeal for God's glory and that his name be hallowed, pray that God would give you what God's will is and that your will and his will would align. Let us never give up hope. Let us never say, I prayed for that for four years and I quit praying. What's plan B? What hope do we go to beyond our God? Let us never quit praying. Father, thank you that we can have communion with you through the blood of Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice. Lord, let us value this communion that we can have with you. Father, let us never get lazy and think we can have close communion with you without hard study of your word and meditation on who you are and what you're like. Let us seek to know you more than we seek to know our friends or our wives or our children. You are the most glorious. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.